Today we're going to record at home, since I'm not preaching elsewhere, part four of our Lenten series, The Seven Words from the Cross. And today's message is entitled simply, My God, My God, Why? It's based on Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46. Now, until a few weeks ago, most of us had never given any serious thought to a place called Marjorie Stoneham Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. But on February 14th, Valentine's Day, Ash Wednesday, a young man killed 17 people. In one interview I watched, a parent wondered, why does it seem like God has forsaken us? Well, it is Friday morning in Jerusalem, another hot April day. It's killing time. Death is in the air. The word is spread to every corner of the city. The Romans plan to crucify somebody today. A crowd gathers on the north end of town. Just outside the Damascus Gate is a place called Skull Hill. The Romans like it because the hill is beside a main road. That way lots of people can watch the crucifixion. On this day, more people than usual have gathered. They come out of the macabre human fascination with the bizarre. The very horror of crucifixion just drew people. This day seems like any other, but Jesus is being crucified. The word spreads like wildfire. His reputation has preceded him. No one is neutral. Some believe, many doubt, a few hate. The crucifixion begins at 9 a.m. sharp. At first, the crowd is rowdy, loud, raucous, boisterous, as if this were some kind of athletic event. They cheer, they laugh, they shout, they place wagers on how long the men being crucified will last. It appears that the man in the middle will not last long. He's already been severely beaten. In fact, it looks like four or five state soldiers have taken turns working him over. His skin hangs from his back and tatters. His face is bruised and swollen. His eyes nearly shut. Blood trickles from a dozen open wounds. He's an awful sight. There are voices from all three crosses, the kind of hoarse conversation shouted above the din. Little pieces float through the air. Something that sounds like, Father, forgive them. Something else about, if you are the Son of God, and then a promise of paradise. And finally, Jesus spots his mother and speaks to her. <clears throat> and then it happened. At noon, Scripture says, darkness fell upon all the land. It happened so suddenly that no one expected it. One moment the sun was right overhead, the next moment it has disappeared. It was not an eclipse, nor was it a dark cloud cover. It was darkness itself, thick, inky black darkness that fell like a shroud over the land. It was darkness without any hint of light to come. It was chilling blackness that curdled the blood and froze the skin. No one moved, no one spoke. For once, even the profane soldiers stopped their swearing. Not a sound broke the dark silence over Skull Hill. Something eerie was going on. It was as if some evil force had taken over the earth and was somehow breathing out of the darkness. You could almost reach out and feel the evil all around. From somewhere deep in the earth, there was a sound like some dark subterranean chuckle. It was the laugh of hell. It lasted for three long hours. 12.30, still dark. 1.15, still dark. 2.05, still dark. 2.55, still dark. 3 o'clock. And just as suddenly as the darkness had descended, it disappeared. Voices now and shouting, rubbing their eyes to adjust once again to the bright sunlight. Panic on many faces, confusion on others. 
a man leans over to his friend and says, what in God's name is going on here? All eyes focus on the center cross. It's clear the end is near. Jesus is at the point of death. What happened in those three hours of darkness has brought him to death's door. His strength is nearly gone, the struggle almost over. His chest heaves with every breath. He moans. His moans now are only whispers. And instinctively, the crowd pushes closely to watch his last moments. And then suddenly he screams, only four words, but they come out in a guttural roar. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. The words are Aramaic, the common language of the day. The words form a question that screams across Skull Hill and drifts across the road. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his book, The Hard Sayings of Jesus, F.F. Burst discusses 70 of the hard-to-understand sayings of our Lord. The last one he discusses is this statement. Of these words of Jesus, Bruce comments, this is the hardest of all the hard statements. Most commentators agree with him. No statement of Jesus is more mysterious than this one. The problem is not with the words. The words in Aramaic or Greek or English are simple. The words we can understand, but what do they mean? The story is told that Martin Luther was studying this text one day. For hours he sat and stared at the text. He said nothing. He wrote nothing, but silently pondered these words. And suddenly he stood up and exclaimed, God forsaken by God, how can it be? Indeed, how can it be? How can God be forsaken by God? How can the Father forsake his own Son? To read these words is to walk on holy ground. And like Moses before the burning bush, we ought to take off our shoes and tread carefully. And let me say frankly that it is far beyond my meager ability to fully explain this saying of Jesus. My problem is not that I do not have enough time. I've I've got plenty of time. And in the time I have, I'll tell you what I know. But what I know is only a fraction of the story. There are mysteries here which no man can explain. Well, let's begin by surveying some of the inadequate explanations that have been given to the question, what do these words mean? To say the following ideas are inadequate is not to say they are not necessarily wrong. It's only to say that they do not tell the whole story. For example, it has been suggested that this was a cry stemming from Jesus' physical suffering. And without a doubt, those sufferings were enormous. By the time he uttered these words, he had hung on the cross for nearly six hours, exposed to the hot Palestinian sun and exposed to the taunts of the crowd. He was nearly dead when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And perhaps it has been suggested he said that in view of all that had happened to him. You know, there are two problems with that view. For one thing, the consistent emphasis of the New Testament is that Jesus died for our sins. And although the Gospels speak of Jesus' physical suffering, they do not emphasize it. The central issue of the cross was not the physical suffering of our Lord, as terrible as it was. The central issue was our Lord bearing the sins of the world. This suggestion tends to weaken the truth that Jesus died for our sins. At the same time, it tends to overemphasize his physical sufferings. Second, it has been suggested that this was a cry of faith. A surprising number of commentators take this view. They note that, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is a quotation from Psalm 22, verse 1. 
In that psalm, David speaks of his own sufferings at the hand of his enemies in a way that ultimately pictures the death of our Lord. And although Psalm 22 begins with a description of intense suffering, it ends on a note of confident trust in God. For that reason, some believe that Jesus quoted verse 1, the cry of desolation, as a way of expressing his trust in God even while on the cross. Unfortunately, that view seems to turn the words of Jesus upside down. It virtually makes the words mean something like this. Although it appears that God has forsaken me, in truth he is not, and in the end I will be vindicated. Now, as true as that might be, after all, he was ultimately vindicated in the resurrection. That does not seem to be the meaning here. The words of Jesus ought to be taken at their face value as a cry of utter desolation. And third, it has been suggested that this is a cry of disillusionment. I mean, skeptics read this as proof that Jesus ultimately failed in his mission. To them, these words mean something like, God, you have forsaken me and all is lost. I came to be the Messiah, but my mission is a failure. Those who hold such a cynical view, we can only say, read the whole story, read the text. Keep reading and you will discover what happens to your failed Messiah. Whatever else these words might mean, they are not the words of a defeated man. Well, what then do these words mean? Well, I suggest that we will never fully grasp their meaning until we see that Jesus was truly forsaken by God. In that black moment on the cross, God the Father turned his back on God the Son. It was, as Luther said, God forsaking God. True, we will never plumb the depths of that statement, but anything less does not do justice to Jesus' words. The word forsaken is a very strong word in Greek. It means to abandon, to desert, to disown, to turn away from, to utterly forsake. So please understand, when Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? It was not simply because he felt forsaken. He said it because he was forsaken. Literally, truly, and actually, God the Father abandoned his own son. Well, in English, we sometimes use this phrase, God forsaken. And it usually refers to some deserted, barren locale. We mean that such a place seems unfit for holy habitation. But we do not literally mean God forsaken, even though that's what we say. But it was true of Jesus. He was the first and only God forsaken person in all history. As many people have pointed out, this is the only time Jesus actually addresses God as my God. Everywhere else he called him Father. But here he said, my God, because the father-son relationship was broken <clears throat> at that very moment. Is it not the chief duty of a parent to take care of his children? Is it not our job to ensure that our children do not suffer needlessly? Will we not do anything in our power to spare them pain? And is that not what makes child abuse such a heinous crime? I ask you then, what would cause a father to forsake his own son? Can you explain it? Is that not a breach of of a father's chief duty? I ask myself, what would cause me to abandon my children? And as I ponder the question, I cannot even imagine the answer. But that is what God did when Jesus died on the cross. He abandoned his very own son. He turned his back. He disowned him. He rejected the one who was called his only begotten son. Now, we may not understand that. Indeed, it's certain that we do not. But what is it that these words mean? Well, that brings us to the great question, why would God do such a horrible thing? One observation will help us find an answer. Something must have happened that day to cause a fundamental change in the father's relationship with the son. 
Something must have happened when Jesus hung on the cross, which had never happened before. At that precise moment, Jesus was bearing the sin of the world. During those three hours of blackness and in the moments immediately afterwards, Jesus felt the full weight of sin rolled onto his shoulders. All of it became his. It happened at that moment of space-time history. Now, I want to share just a side note, because some people might ask, well, doesn't the Bible teach that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world? Well, the answer is yes, but the slaying itself happened at a particular moment in time, specifically a Friday afternoon in April of 33 AD. But since Jesus had a divine nature, what happened to him in history has eternal implications. And I admit that I don't fully understand that last sentence, but I'm sure it's true. The death of Jesus was a historical event in every sense of the word, but it is historical with eternal implications. Let's go one step further. We know from Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 that God cannot look with favor upon wickedness. His eyes are too pure to approve the evil in the world. The key phrase is, with favor. God's holiness demands that he turn away from sin. God will have no part of it. His holiness recoils from the tiniest tinge of wickedness. Therefore, and this is a big therefore, when God looked down and saw his son bearing the sin of the world, he didn't see his son. He saw instead the sin that he was bearing. And in that awful moment, the father turned away, not in anger at his son. No, he loved his son as much at that moment as he ever had. He turned away in anger over all the sin of the world that sent his son to the cross. He turned away in sorrow and deepest pain when he saw what sin had done. He turned away in complete revulsion at the ugliness of sin. And when he did that, Jesus was all alone, completely forsaken, God-forsaken, abandoned, deserted, disowned. There's an old southern gospel song called Ten Thousand Angels. It speaks to the fact that Jesus, by by virtue of being the Son of God, could have called 10,000 angels to rescue him from the cross. He didn't do that, and the chorus ends with these words, but he died alone for you and me. It's true, when Jesus bore the sins of the world, he bore them all alone. Christ is now abandoned, the Trinity disjointed, the Godhead broken. And the fact that I do not know what those words mean does not stop them from being true. Let it be said over and over again, when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was really really and truly forsaken by God. To say that is to say nothing more than the Bible itself says. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, just think of it. The sinless one was made sin for you and me. When God looked down, he saw not his sinless son, he saw sin itself. In Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. I mean, again, think of it. When Jesus was baptized, the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. No longer would the voice say that. At the cross, the beloved son became a curse for us. Or how about Isaiah 53, 6? We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, think about it. All the iniquity, all the evil, all the crime, all the hatred of this world, 
all of it was laid on him. Thus did the Son of God make complete identification with sinners. Jesus became a curse for us. He died in our place and all our sins were laid on him. It was for that reason and only for that reason that God the Father forsook his beloved Son. I want you to imagine that somewhere in the universe there is a cesspool containing all the sins that have ever been committed. The cesspool is deep, dark, and indescribably foul. All the evil deeds that men and women have ever done are floating there. Imagine that there is a river of filth constantly flowing into that cesspool, replenishing that vile mixture with all the evil done every day. Now imagine that while Jesus was on the cross, that cesspool is emptied onto him. See the flow of filth as it settles upon him, the flow which never seems to stop. It is vile, toxic, deadly, filled with disease, pain, and suffering. And when God looked down at his son, he saw the cesspool of sin emptied on his head. Is it no wonder that he turned away from that sight? I mean, who could bear to watch it? I mean, think of it. All the lust in the world was there. All the broken promises. All the murders, the killing, the hatred between people. All the theft, all the adultery, pornography, drunkenness, all the bitterness and greed and gluttony and drug abuse. All the crime, all the cursing, every vile deed, every wicked thought, every vain imagination. All of it was laid upon Jesus when he hung on the cross. Now I take from this two solemn truths, two great implications. It reveals to us two things we must never minimize. Implication number one, we must never minimize the horror of human sin. Sometimes we laugh at sin and we say, the devil made me do it, as if sin were something to joke about. But it was our sin that Jesus bore that day. It was our sin that caused the Father to turn away from the Son. It was our sin floating in that cesspool of iniquity. He became a curse and we were part of the reason. So let us never joke about sin. It's no laughing matter. Implication number two, we must never minimize the awful cost of our salvation. Is it possible that some Christians become tired of hearing about the cross? Is it possible that we would rather hear about happy things? But without the awful pain of the cross, there would be no happy things to talk about. Without the cross, there would be no forgiveness. Without the cross, there would be no salvation. Without the cross, we would be forever lost. Without the cross, our sins would still be upon us. It cost Jesus everything to redeem us, and let us never make light of what cost him so dearly. Now, somewhere I read the story of a father whose son was killed in a tragic accident. In great grief and enormous anger, he visited his pastor and poured out his heart. He said, where was God when my son died? The pastor paused for a moment and with great wisdom replied, the same place he was when his son died. Now, this cry from the cross is for all the lonely people of the world. It's for the abandoned child, the widow, the divorcee struggling to make ends meet, the mother standing over the bed of her suffering daughter, the father out of work, the parents left alone, the prisoner in his cell, the aged who languish in convalescent homes, wives abandoned by their husbands, singles who celebrate their birthdays alone. This is the word of the cross from you, for you. No one has ever been as alone as Jesus was. You will never be forsaken as he was. No cry of your pain can exceed the cry of his pain when God turned his back and looked the other way. And thank God it is true. He was forsaken that you might never be forsaken. He was abandoned that you might never be abandoned. 
He was deserted that you might never be deserted. He was forgotten that you might never be forgotten. And most importantly, he went to hell for you so you wouldn't have to go. See, if you go to hell, it will be despite what Jesus did for you. He's already been there. He took the blow. He took the pain. He endured the suffering. He took the weight of all your sins. So if you do go to hell, don't blame Jesus. It's not his fault. He already went there, so you didn't have to. Now, what is the worst thing about hell? Well, it's not the fire, though the fire is real. It's not the memory of your past, though the memory is real. It's not the darkness, though the darkness is real. The worst thing about hell is that it is the one place in the universe where people are utterly and forever forsaken by God. Hell is truly a God-forsaken place. That's the hell of hell. To be in a place where God has abandoned you for all of eternity. That's the bad news. The good news is this. You don't have to go there. Jesus has already been there for you. He went there 2,000 years ago, so you don't have to. He died a sinner's death and took a sinner's punishment so that guilty sinners like you and me could be eternally forgiven. If after everything I have said, you still don't understand these words of Jesus, be of good cheer. No one on earth fully understands them. So rest in this simple truth. He was forsaken that you might never be forsaken. And those who trust in him will never be disappointed in this life or the life to come. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion.